Hello, my name is Brett and I'm a Colorado native. I'm an interior designer and I have my own business called The Fourth House. Uh, go ahead and tell me a little bit about what Fourth House is, including where the name came from. Yeah, um, so The Fourth House is, like I said, my interior design company. I started it last summer. Um, it's just kind of a way for me to kind of identify a little bit more with my interior design and separate that from my modeling career and kind of other things that I do in my life. I kind of started this whole other thing focused um, on design and kind of focused on my career for once. Um, but the name The Fourth House actually is really special to me because um, it's astrological. So if you're familiar with astrology, there's 12 houses um, and each of the houses is ruled by a different sign. Um, so the fourth house is actually the house of home. So the full name of my company is the fourth house of homes, um, which happens to be ruled by cancer, which I am tried and true a cancer. So it makes all the sense in the world. Um, yeah, but that was just kind of, it was one of those moments that when I found it, it just added up in my head and I was it was done a done deal it was a sign for me that I was kind of on the right path and needed to pursue this and kind of see where it took me on my own little journey rather than kind of jumping behind you know other names and other brand names and thing it was a big deal for me so yeah that's the fourth house um a little bit about what I do there I do a combination of things, mainly staging um, with another company that I work with called Guest House here in Denver. Um, but I do full interior design as well as set design, which is kind of fun. Um, because I started out modeling, I kind of jumped behind camera um, doing styling, like clothing styling, and then eventually kind of geared it towards set design. And so that's kind of how I got my start in the interior design world. I didn't go to school or anything for it. I'm pretty self-taught. So that's how it started. And um, now I'm just kind of in that process of growing guest house, or excuse me, growing the fourth house and building a name for it here in Denver. So this is an exciting moment to be able to do that. That's great. <clears throat> so um, you already talked about how you got into interior design, but what was the draw for interior design? Like, what was its purpose in your life? Yeah, so I have a very hard time kind of figuring out where I fit in. And additionally, I know that I'm like, I've always known that like, I'm a creative, artistic person, but I've had a really, really hard time figuring out how to express that in a way that keeps my attention as well because I like to do things and then I feel really expressive and creative and it'll last three months or it'll last six months or whatever that is mm -hmm. and so with design I this has kind of always just been something in the back of my head that I wanted to do originally I wanted to go to school for it back when I went to college and then kind of talked myself out of it and um it kind of just came back around um I started, I guess I, I jumped on board with a friend of mine doing a little bit of like staging design work. And that was my first attempt at just like, maybe this is for me. And like, maybe this is kind of what I should be doing because I'd done set design. And so that was just kind of a natural bridge. But um, not until I started working with the guests, with guest house here in town, did I really feel like I'm doing the right thing. Like, so it's hard to say I just kind of kind of stumbled into it because I was looking so hard for something and like some way to express my creativity that I finally just gave up. And of course, like as I did that, then all the opportunities come, you know what I mean? And like then of course that's how it happens. And so I just was like tapped out and like gonna go back into the service industry. And then we're just like on a whim, I'm gonna do this thing. And it kind of worked out. So I haven't looked back since. So, um, when you're putting together a house or a project, do you call it a project? Like, I don't like, yeah, I'm so new to, to this. Oh, industry. No, totally, yeah, project, yeah, like always, yeah, a new project or a new space or what is an element that makes the home happy or satisfying, especially for the clients that you're building it for? Um, so I honestly think that anything like the way to make a house a home is basically through two things one is through plants, live breathing, living plants, because it just gives you something in your home to like actively do. Like if you're not, if you don't like to organize or you don't like to clean or you don't like to spend a lot of time in your house or, or you don't have pets or things like that, it gives you something in your house to 
that you have to do if you want to, if you want to keep them looking pretty and you want them to, to keep you know the plants flourishing and obviously keep them alive there's a little bit of work that's put into that and that guaranteed kind of amount of time that you're I think naturally going to want to spend there and you're going to give that effort and just by de facto you're going to start kind of building a relationship with your plants as odd as that sounds like I'm like don't think I keep anything alive, but like my plants are my babies and I will not let them die. And so that's definitely, I think, one way to make a house a home. And when I do full interior design, as well as when I just do staging, I always try to bring some element of real plant life into the house just because it's a breath of fresh air. Literally, there's no harm, no foul in plants. There's easy ones to keep alive, you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, So definitely plants. And then the other way to make a house a home, I think, is just by adding character. And I think that kind of gets lost nowadays, especially with a lot of people doing design, you know, like on Instagram and doing it just, you know, for the photo or just for the likes or just for the follows or the feature and all of those things that people just put in their house what's trendy and what they like, but they forget to relate to it sometimes. And so especially when I'm staging a lot of modern houses, like I make it a point to bring in vintage goods because that's like a house that I don't necessarily don't know who's going to buy it or don't know the owner, you know, things like that. But I don't know kind of that's just my vision I can kind of bring to life. But by putting some character in that house, whether it's just like a couple vintage pieces or just things you found or repurposing something like that, I think is what makes it feel like a home. Like you walk in there and there's something in there. There's some history. There's some story. Whoever it is, it's in there. And so that kind of is what grounds it a bit, I think. <laughs> I love your answer. <laughs> but I think that that's tricky when you're designing a home and you're putting things in there that you want people to relate to. How do you, when you go into one of your homes or into one of your products, how do you want to inspire others when you when you put together um, this house, when you stage a house? Yeah, so I essentially want to inspire others not necessarily through my art I consider my designs my art that's kind of my artistic expression but more so through the stuff that I put in the home so I guess a little bit of backstory with that so guest house is the staging company here in Denver that I work with Um, what's a little bit different about guest house is we stage all of our homes with local goods and local makers and furniture made locally here in Colorado, you know, all the way down to the bedding and the the glasses in the cabinet, like everything in this space is kind of made locally. And so one, I guess that's another way that brings in character. But because of that, not only do I get to like make super sick houses, I get to like have connections with the people that make the stuff in the house and so those are that's actually become my favorite part about it is being able to meet the you know put a face to the product and be able to meet the people that do that and I think because I'm I I pull together so many different forms of art in a house that itself I want to kind of be the inspiration like I just want like I want nothing to be with me I just want people to come in and be like I know that artist that's hanging on the wall or I like met this guy that made this couch one time and now he's here and we can meet and like just like make that connection and bring that community together is so cool for me to watch being from here and then I have one more kind of like fun question okay. <laughs> um what advice do you have for people that are putting together like their first home in order to make it feel like something that they can be comfortable and live in for a while? You've already said it could be plants. You said it's a little bit of character. But what is like a first step that somebody should take when they're looking at designing their home? Honestly, take your time. That is the Mm. first step you should do because I know and me included in that. I know so many people that buy a new house or get into a new apartment and just like want it full like want it and ready to be put stuff in it but chances are you're not gonna be able to afford all the stuff that you really want all at one time so that is my thing of like take your time if that means you have like a crappy couch that you brought from your mom's basement for three months until you can save up and get that amazing velvet one it's gonna be worth it rather than just going to Ikea or picking up something small, you know, not that there's always bad, like there are, there's good things at Ikea and there's good things at Target, let's be (laughs) honest, but like take your time, I think for sure. And then also 
yeah, really think about it. Like try to curate your space. Like you're going to spend a lot of time there regardless at, at some point and you want that to feel good and you want to feel good in your house. And so just think about the kind of, I'm big on vibes. Like as you go into each room, like think about the vibe that you want that room to emulate for you, what you want that room to say, not necessarily about you. Like, of course, you're going to have people over here and that's going to say something about you, but think about what you want it to say to you or what purpose that room is going to serve for you and then style that way, you know? So like your living room obviously is going to have a lot more people in it probably and that's going to be a more high energy vibe a lot of you know you might want to do some more color in the living room or just different funky pieces that are conversation starters or things like that in the living room but like my bedroom is completely different than the rest of my house because like I want it to be a quiet little sanctuary where no one can bother me and so there's a whole other you know thing in there so whatever that is for you and however you want that to feel Think about that and like, I mean, on like write it down, think about it, like go through your space and think about what you want to emulate where and how to do that. And then slowly it will start to come together and do that. If you have the overall vision of what that's supposed to feel like or want it to feel like from there, it'll kind of take form into that. Welcome back to Shoes Off, Please. We're here with another episode and some cool new additions for you, just like the one that you just heard. This is a new segment that we're calling Happy Home. I'm sitting down with folks that focus on creating safe and supportive spaces and what they're doing to create fulfilling lifestyles. On this episode, I will talk with Debbie Ortega, our city councilwoman at large. Before she is up for re-election this May, I hope to deep dive with her about vulnerability, handling stress and overcoming obstacles, and how her past has affected her present in a tough career in Denver politics. I just want to start off by asking who you are. So just tell me a brief description about who is Debbie Ortega. And also, do you prefer Debbie or do you prefer Deborah? Um, formally, I go by Deborah, but informally, I go by Debbie. Everybody knows me as Debbie. Um, so I'm a mother. I have one daughter who has blessed me with five grandchildren. Wow. (laughs) Um, one is married and has two little ones. They live in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Um, two are graduated from high school and are both in the Navy. So they followed right behind their sister who got married right after she graduated. And then I have a granddaughter graduating in May who's going to go into the Air Force. And my youngest um, is 11, so he's in the sixth grade. And my daughter is a sergeant in the Denver Sheriff's Department. So we have a strong family of public service. Um, So I'm the daughter of a coal miner. My dad was killed in a coal mine accident when I was five. My mom had to figure out how to you know, go from being a homemaker to taking care of five small children, all of which were under eight years old. And so I was in the fifth grade when she married my stepdad. He had a construction company, and there was no real work down in New Mexico in a small town. Mm-hmm. And so um, we moved to Denver, and I've been here ever since. I was 13 when we moved to Denver. And um, my mom was always involved in volunteering at uh, VOA. Um, My dad, when uh, he was alive, whenever any of the minors would get injured, he would be the the person kind of going and talking to the other minors and collecting money and going and buying groceries and giving the rest of the money to the minors who had been injured on the job to help them pay their bills. And so just that Commitment to service is something that's just kind of ingrained in who I am based on, you know, my my family environment. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, family is everything, right? Mm-hmm. And um, my, my daughter, I'm very proud of, of who she is and what she is doing. And she's an incredible mother. Her and my uh, son-in-law have done an amazing job raising my grandkids. 
they had them all involved in sports, mm-hmm. and um, all all of them went through Montessori Elementary School. Um, so they're all very strong-minded, strong-willed, creative thinkers, um, and they chose on their own to go into the military. So one's in Japan, one's in Cuba, and I have no idea where uh, my youngest granddaughter is going to end up, but uh, they're all amazing. So we have an election in May, and as soon as my election is over and my granddaughter graduates from high school, we're all getting together and we're going to go on a cruise. This will be my first cruise. (laughs) Never had a desire to do this, but uh, my daughter convinced me to, to go with them while and I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a great time. So even my granddaughter that has the little ones in Wisconsin and her husband are coming. So there's going to be 17 of us on a cruise ship. We're probably going to drive everybody crazy, <laughs> you know, but we're going to have an awesome time. Yes. So we're going to go down to a place that I've always wanted to see, which is Belize. Oh, um, okay. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, I don't know. My daughter's coordinated all the details, <laughs> but we'll we'll hit a number of islands along the way. But I'm just looking forward to having that downtime <laughs> because mm-hmm. it's been really crazy busy, mm-hmm. you know, trying to do my day job and campaign at the same time. So it's like having two full t- full-time jobs right. simultaneously. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so... That gives you a little background on who I am. My entire adult life has been um, basically in the the public arena. I started out with my first political job working for George Brown, who was our first African-American lieutenant governor when he was um, Dick Lamb's uh, lieutenant governor. And then I worked for a United States senator, Floyd Haskell, up until the time that he lost his election, and that's when, you know, I was looking for work and learned about a councilman who uh, had an opening, and I interviewed with him and worked for him for eight years, up until the time that he decided he wasn't going to run. And at that time, I thought, so what do I want to do with my life? Mm -hmm. And I had many people in the district saying, you know the district, you know the people, you know the issues, you should run. And people who had never been involved in an election or a campaign were some of my strongest advocates, both Republicans and Democrats, who helped me knock on doors and, you know, turn out their families and their their friends. And so I served in District 9, which is basically the neighborhoods that run along the I-70 corridor by um, the National Western Stock Show, took a swath through downtown lower downtown, Central Platte Valley, mm-hmm. Auraria campus, and then ran along the I-25 corridor. Mm-hmm. Um, so it took in Baker, Lincoln Park. So it was a pretty big a district. Big and district. at the time, yeah. it used to go all the way to Mississippi. So it took in the Gates site as well uh-huh. as the Broadway Marketplace and the right. Design Center. Uh-huh. So very active district. Um, we were in the middle of you know, building out the Central Platte Valley, the area behind the train station. Mm-hmm. We had Coors Field come into the district. I served as president of council twice during the time that Coors Field was open and during the time we opened up the airport. Mm-hmm. So um, had a chance to be involved with issues like um, McNichol Sports Arena closing down and being on the negotiating committee for the Pepsi Center coming in and looking at what kind of revenues that was going to give back to the city. Mm-hmm. Um, the football stadium, going from the old Mile High Stadium to building a new football stadium. And all of that was tied to McNichols moving and using all of that land down there and working with the neighborhoods and making sure we were addressing the impact issues to the communities. So I have considered myself as um, an advocate for our neighborhoods and fighting to make sure those voices are included in everything we do in our city. And um, if you look at you know, what occurred a number of years ago where we had the city recommend that a park that had been in Southeast Denver since the 50s would be used for DPS to come in and build a school and swap that land for a building downtown that was going to be used for domestic violence. I supported the need for a school in Southeast Denver. I supported the need for a domestic violence facility. I was actually on the board, I was a board chair of a Latina Safe House organization. 
But this was the wrong way to do it. You don't take parkland that's been in the city's portfolio, and just because it was never formally dedicated, it became, you know, easy pickings, if you will. <laughs> and the neighborhood went crazy. They sued the city. Um, neighborhoods across the city said, whoa, 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 when are we going right. to be next? And I asked the question, how many undedicated parks do we have in our city? Mm -hmm. And learned that there were quite a few. So we had Parks and Rec work to keep, bring them all forward so we could formally dedicate them. And here's what's important about that. If a park is dedicated to try to get rid of that requires you have to go to a vote of the people. So you can't just, you know, decide you want to sell it or swap it or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, we now have that protection for all the rest of our parks. So there, there are a few that have what are called conservation easements, and that's a different kind of protection on the park. Mm -hmm. But that's an example of just, you know, fighting alongside with the neighborhood to protect that open space that had been in their neighborhood for a long time. Fast forward to now, mm -hmm. last year in November, voters passed an initiative that gives us funding Mm -hmm. to make sure that we can um, acquire more parkland in our city. Mm -hmm. um, that'll generate about $37 million a year that will assist us in making sure as we keep growing as a city, and we're not so much growing out because we don't have a lot of land other than out at the airport. Right. We're growing up. And what that means is we're bringing more people into our city. And in doing that, we have to have open space and green spaces for them. So just wanted to share that as, as an example of one of the issues that I was very involved in. Well, I am curious. Um, you kind of already answered some of the questions that I needed, which was fantastic. <laughs> but I do want to talk about how you address that fear when neighborhoods come to you in this panic. Like you want these, these underrepresented um, voices to be heard. How do you make sure that you're trying to listen to everyone and voice those concerns, but still do your job? Mm -hmm. So I will always push back from within the city to say, we need to make sure we're taking a step back and doing the homework with neighborhoods. And let me give you one example. And this is, this is very recent and very fresh. Um, we have had this tiny home village that has been in the city of Denver, which I'm very supportive of. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually serving on a committee right now that is looking at making some changes to our group living ordinance that would create some permanency around tiny homes being able to exist in our city where they're not having to relocate and move and go through the cost of finding a landowner willing to lease it to them for a, a short-term period of time and, you know, just trying to make sure you've got the amenities that the residents need. Right. So this would create the opportunity for them to finally invest in having a kitchen and bathrooms and that kind of thing. Right. Well, they're at a site where it's short-term, it's temporary. Mm -hmm. They have to be out of there by a deadline. They looked around, found a site in the Globeville neighborhood, but... The problem is a lease for that site was brought to city council committee, moved out of committee the same week they were going to have their first conversation with the residents, two days before. And the residents learned about that, and they just went crazy. They're like, we're a low-income community. You would not do this in an affluent neighborhood. Do not disrespect us in that way. And their response was not only no, but hell no, because you did not honor the fact that you needed to talk to us first. Mm -hmm. And so they've dug their heels in the sand. The city has gone out, knocked on doors, tried to identify that they have people in the community. The neighborhood's out circulating their own petition because somebody from the administration was part of the door knocking. People were intimidated and felt like, you know, if they didn't sign it, there might be some retaliation, you know. But I, when I learned that the city disrespected the community, and I went to that first meeting, mm -hmm. and, and people were angry. And there are lots of meetings in these neighborhoods because there's so much activity from I-70 to National Western to public and private development. Right. These communities are meeting to death. 
And lots of times you'll see the same handful of people at all the same meetings. This meeting was packed with, with residents from the Glowville neighborhood who were just very upset. And, and it wasn't so much directed at the folks from the tiny home. It was more about process. And so this is an example where process matters. And we have to honor the voice of community, regardless of what community we're dealing with around this city, and, and respect the input from people. So right now, this is kind of in limbo. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tiny homes were able to go get an extension at the current location. The city's scrambling, trying to help them find a location. But the bottom line is, these folks from the, the tiny home community have been raising the money on their own to go to all these different sites. Mm-hmm. And once we get to a place where we can have permanent, you know, language that allows permanent existence, it will make that work much better. So... Again, the voice of community, it, it has to be not only, you can't just check the box, oh, we notified the neighborhood. Right. It's got to be genuine engagement. So that sounded like a very, because I actually read about that article um, before our interview, um, that the tiny house conversation was starting to get a little stressful. Mm-hmm. How do you handle personally um big issues like that, like how does that weigh on stress for you and how do you handle the pressure of needing to deliver um, yeah. during large projects like that? So first of all, I learned a long time ago, you don't take this stuff personal. Mm-hmm. You you focus on the issue. Um, when people make it personal and they're attacking you and not the issue, then you have to try to figure out how to, how to calm people down. And I think in a situation like this, typically people need the opportunity to vent and and just get past the 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 fact that they felt disrespected. Um, and and again, I don't take that personal. I, I think for me it's it's making sure that you've got all voices at the table and and all sides represented, but you do that on the front end. You don't do that sort of after the fact because sometimes it's hard to get past the fact that they felt disrespected. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is not a process that I was spearheading. And again, you know, I represent the whole city, mm-hmm. and there is a council person that represents this particular district, just like the um, park situation that I t- talked about a minute ago. And in that case, you know, I meet and talk with the council person, and sometimes we just agree to disagree. Mm-hmm. And we do that respectfully not by calling each other names or, you know, attacking them publicly or behind their backs, but really by just trying to work together and, um, you know, try to find the best outcome for the community. And so in this case, um, I have, you know, tried to intervene with the mayor's office and encourage that they look at other sites because I don't think we get past the fact that the community... um, has dug their heels in the sand. And one of the concerns with this particular site was this very neighborhood has been working with the city for a long time, trying to get them to clean up this lot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in the past, they were told it's railroad land, we can't do anything. You know, we find out that the city now owns it. And all of a sudden, the city went out and not only cleaned up the lot, but they paved over it. Oh. And it's like, Wow, why wouldn't you do that for us? Right. You know? So um, respect goes two ways, right? right? So um, in this case, that's it, it's, it's up in the air. I don't know where this is going to land. Mm-hmm. Um, the administration may decide they're going to try to force the issue. Mm-hmm. And I'll have to figure out where, where I'm going to be on this. But I well, strongly encourage I them to look at other things. A little sites. bit away yeah. from... Um, politics, because yes. I do want to learn about you too. <laughs> okay. Um, but still talking about some of these harder issues that you face, like on a day to day, what keeps you motivated? So, what keeps you going? What keeps you pushing forward? What inspires you the most um, whenever you have to deal with these really tough situations? For me, I think part of it is just looking at the fact that we're we're seeing so much. Um, 
so much activity and wealth being built in our city, but at the same time, we're seeing lots of people left behind who are just struggling to survive. You know, and I'm not I'm not talking about our homeless population. I mean, yes, they struggle daily, um, but I'm talking about a lot of our working families too, and trying to figure out how do we meet the needs of all of these segments of people in our community and not just be a city that serves the haves, but we have to be a city that cares for everybody in a way that creates opportunity. So it's why, for example, I worked on the I-70 project to make sure we were going to have plenty of jobs and not just not just regular construction jobs that pay minimal wage or or slightly above, but making sure that we have a commitment to funding apprentices, apprenticeships for people who want to be trained in one of the skilled trades. And we have a thousand people in that pipeline right now Mm -hmm. from a program that's been created called Work Now that is not just working on I-70, but it's working on National Western and all of our bond projects and our airport construction projects. And we've targeted people who are homeless. We've targeted people who have offender backgrounds, people who are unemployed and underemployed in our city. And yes, we have an amazing um, unemployment rate, but it doesn't look at people who are unemployed and underemployed. And those are the folks we're trying to make sure get served. So when I get up in the morning, I look at what can I do today to have some impact and how can how can I, you know, ask our creator, God, to use me as a vessel to impact the lives of people in a positive way because I've been blessed and and I consider this as as an opportunity um, and and a gift that's been given to me to utilize this position in a way that isn't about me, but it's about how can how can I make a difference in the lives of other people and no one of us do that alone. I mean, it's all about collaboration and working with community, working with our my colleagues, and working with the administration to get things done. This is a strong mayor form of government, mm-hmm. and um, really, it's it's um, a matter of knowing that I didn't get here by myself. Um, I I really appreciate the opportunities that have been given to me to be in incredible places that have allowed me allowed me to grow and and to make a difference and I think it's important that we always go back and honor and respect the people who who came before us and who created those opportunities and that it not be about me and that I continue to keep that door open for other people to step into my shoes and and to continue to make a difference for community. Um, so basically what I'm hearing is that the community is what motivates you, which is why you went into public service in the Absolutely. first place. But as a millennial, um, yeah. I don't know if you already know about this, but it's a huge topic in conversation now about self-care and yes. mental health and yes. what are we doing to focus on ourselves so that we can be our best selves and put our best for- foot forward out in the world um, just by taking that time that you need in order to... I guess, recharge. Yeah. Yeah. So you already talked about um, uh, God and how that yeah. is a power in your life. Is that one way that you take care of yourself? Yeah, so I grew up in a Catholic school. Um, so faith is a strong part of my foundational being, if you will. Um, I, I'm physically active. Um, I walk Sloan's Lake on a regular basis. Yes. I'm a fair-weathered walker, so when it's really cold and snowy, I, I'm i not as motivated <laughs> to get out in the cold. Um, but, you know, one of my junior high school friends, she and I meet at the lake, and we walk the lake on a, on a, a daily basis, um, especially as, you know, the weather starts to get nice. Um, I ride my bike. I love our trail system that we have throughout our metropolitan area. It's incredible. Um, I I make jewelry. Um, I make my own homemade salsa. (laughs) 
So, you know, I, I, I keep myself busy. I have lots of friends. Mm-hmm. Um, we get together and do things. So I, I keep busy. And for me, being able to recharge is important. Um, people would not know this about me, but I'm an introvert. And so when I've been around people a lot and I have an opportunity to have downtime and to be alone and recharge my extrovert units, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I value that time. I have a garden. I love gardening. Um, so, you know, I, I, I make it a point to take care of me. And um, I think for anybody, you have to love yourself before you can give to others. And um, so, yeah, I take care of me. (laughs) I love that. I feel like I tell people daily that I'm an extroverted introvert. And when I'm out (laughs) in the real world, I definitely come home and zone myself (laughs) as much as possible. But that's so cool. I didn't know that you make jewelry and that you make your own salsas. Is it... Do you find it fulfilling to have like those creative endeavors? And does that give you new insight for when you come into work? Yeah, it does. It does. So like um, a lot of times during the holidays, I'll find myself, you know, where we have some downtime and I'm not having to check into work because we've got, you know, our committee meetings canceled for the week or whatever. Mm -hmm. I'll take some time off from work and I'll binge watch television, um, holiday movies, and I'll sit there and make jewelry and and just pump out a ton of stuff. And I'm really bad about this. So a lot of people are like, oh, you should sell your stuff. I end up giving more of it away than I ever try to sell anything. I'm looking for the Etsy shop, right? Yeah. Uh, I actually had my granddaughter come over and help me put all of them, you know, to take pictures and put them on Etsy and I, I thought it was more work than yeah, it was worth, it but um, <laughs> I had one situation where a friend of mine uh, lives in Seattle, and she took a whole bunch of my jewelry, and she sold it for me out there. So I was like, hey, we should do this again. Right. <laughs> it's a cool way to get but, out there yeah. and express your creative right, interests. Right, right. Yeah, I love that. I love hearing about passion projects. <laughs> yeah. So I kind of want to deviate a little bit. Um, We've talked about mental health. um, We've talked about your creative projects. But what does your work-life balance look like? So when you go home and you finally have decompressed, maybe you've made some jewelry, how do you keep work and your personal life separate? Um, You have to know how to turn it off. And you um, you have to be able to turn it off. And it's it's hard to do when people have your cell number, um, you know, with email, it never stops. I mean, you get them at the, in the middle of the night, and I'm one of those people that doesn't go to bed late and gets up early. And so I'm one of those people sending late night and early morning emails to people. Um, but you have to create that time for you in your schedule and and be able to not allow work things to interfere and and interrupt that. And and so that's part of the balance that I think anybody in any work environment has to create because that's part of what keeps the the mental health <laughs> intact. Um and you know, I mean part of that is is Surrounding yourself by positive people and and doing doing things that are fun and getting out of the house and going and doing things and enjoying the beautiful mountains that we have in Colorado. Um, I know we have kids that live in our city who have never been in the mountains. They get to look at them. And so it's creating those opportunities in our parks and rec system and in our schools that that do those excursions and take them up to our mountains and and allow them to realize there's more than just the life they live every day going from school to work, you know? So, yeah, those are some of the things that I try to do. Well, I love that you have all of this balance. It sounds great, (laughs) but it also (laughs) sounds like a lot to achieve. So 
if you could tell other women that want to go into public service, whether that be uh, wanting to become a council person or wanting to go into any other kind of like public service field, Mm -hmm. what advice would you have for them? I think the first thing is um, know that it's what you want. Know that it's for you because sometimes you think you want something and when you realize what that entails, you realize it's not for you. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes that means go go volunteer, you know, spend some time with that profession or that elected person that um, you want to learn more about the kind of work that they do as a way to determine, is this what I really want to do with my life? You know, I was somebody who um, was able to graduate from high school a whole semester early. I had all my school credits. I didn't have a good counselor that guided me in moving me on to college. Um, I ended up going to business school and paying for my own schooling, taking classes that second semester I could have taken in school and not had to pay for. Nobody guided me in that. But you know what? In that opportunity, I had the chance to go work for DU Law School while I was going to business school. That's where I met the people who encouraged me to apply for the job that I later was hired on at with Lieutenant Governor George Brown. And that started the path of what got me to where I am today. So I wouldn't change any of that. Um but I will use that to help encourage and guide other people to, you know, look at what all their options and opportunities are before they make decisions. Because it's, it's important to do that homework mm-hmm. and then make your decision to move forward once you, you realize that is the path for you. And then again, part of that is take care of yourself in the process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, oftentimes women find themselves in situations where they're dependent on somebody else. And in in most cases, you know, it's a partner that they think is going to be their anchor, if you will, to help them get through life. But we all have to figure out that path on our own. And it's important to find somebody that complements your life as opposed to somebody you have to depend upon. And when you realize that you're the only person you can depend upon and you strive to be the best person you can be and you look at where you can be of of benefit and service to others, that's when your life begins to flourish. And um, that's been my experience. So what I'm hearing is from the beginning, um, you really wish that you had some guidance or like a mentor that was able to kind of like help you through. That would have helped in my high school years. Absolutely. So um, how would you suggest that somebody goes about finding a mentor that can sponsor them and support them in a way that can help push them forward? Did you find somebody like later in your college years when you were at business school? You know, I was I was very blessed to have um good people around me that provided guidance and assistance. When I worked in the lieutenant governor's office, um, the lieutenant governor's chief of staff, Josie Johnson, um, was like a mother figure. And, you know, my my mom lived here in Denver, and um, my mom was a lifesaver for me because, you know, I, I was married, but the relationship didn't work out. I married a, a Vietnam vet, who I didn't realize at the time was dealing with PTSD, and I didn't know how to deal with any of that. I just knew I wasn't going to live in an alcoholic, abusive relationship. And and so I chose to move on and be a single mom and raise my daughter in a healthy environment. And if it were not for my mother being there to help me, and again, part of this is having that support system around you. And it doesn't mean it's always got to be family. In a lot of cases, it's friends. We have people who have moved here from, you know, every state in the country, and they're they're growing families, and you know, their support network become parents, 
you know, that their their kids go to school with or neighbors or just colleagues from work that are willing to pitch in and help be there as that support system. So I think part of that is is really cultivating that. And I think the important thing that I've learned is everything we do is relational. And it's all about cultivating relationships and maintaining those positive relationships. And in in my life where I have encountered people who um, I didn't find to be positive, um, that I didn't get along with or vice versa, I choose to just move on and surround myself with people that are positive and that will continue to help me grow. And so I guess part of my advice to anybody would be, you know, find your own path and surround yourself with people who will support you and, you know, the rest will will just fall into place. Um, I want to go a little bit back to um, you saying that you chose to leave like that really stressful, abusive relationship. Plus, you've had some past trauma in your life with your dad passing when you were really young. Um, I know a lot of women um, let hindrances like that affect their work. And I really admire the fact that you're able to overcome and surround yourself with very positive people to help push you through. What would you tell those women that are going through a tough time right now, but are still striving so hard um, within their workplace? So the first is be true to yourself. Um, Know that you were created in God's image as as, um, a pure and, and beautiful person that has a lot to a lot to give. And um, when you approach your life from that perspective, all the rest, um, you know, becomes just attracting goodness and the light to you in, in the way that um, you interface with people and, and just what, what you attract to yourself. You know, so... Don't let the negative stuff define you. Our past is not who we are today. And the people who have taken that and allowed themselves to become a better person are that better person because of who, what they've been through. And, and so don't let it define you, but utilize it to allow your, um, your influence in this world to, to be a greater impact on the lives of others. Would you say that in your role, vulnerability plays an important part in what you do? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And every day is humbling. Um, you know, the work I did for eight years at the Department of Human Services as the executive director for the Homeless Commission, um, I would routinely be in and out of our homeless shelters it was my job to open temporary homeless shelters, and I would ride the bus with them over to the sites to make sure, you know, they got there safe, that things were were working the way they were supposed to. Um, every day is humbling in terms of, of just knowing we're all here for a short period of time. And, you know, before my mother um, passed, she always used to say, you know, we're all just passing through this life. And, and the older you get, the quicker the years will fly by. And, and there is so much truth to that. And no one of us knows how much time we have here because at any point in time, any one of us can be, you know, just picked off this earth in, in any multitude of ways. But it's using the opportunity that we've been given to be here and, again, to be the best person that we could be and to look at where we can make a difference. And if if we could all, you know, and maybe this is very Pollyannish, (laughs) if we could all just look at life in that way, I think it would would break down so many barriers in terms of how people get along 
and respecting one another and understanding that we all have a contribution to make. And um, really, it's just a matter of, of acknowledging that and then being able to, to move on and look at how we can influence those around us. Right. Well, I would like to say thank you so much for this conversation. I learned so much about you and what you do, and I have another level of respect for all thank the you. work that you put thank in. Thank you. And I think that that cruise is going to be well-deserved. Well, you know, I love what I do, and um, that makes a difference. Right. Not everybody can say they love their work. And yes, it gets gruesome and it gets crazy at times, but what profession can anybody go into where you can impact so many different um, subject matters, if you will, and so many lives of people than when you serve in politics? And I believe that it's not the kind of job people do because you want it as a stepping stone to your next higher and bigger opportunity, but it's because you have a commitment to public service and a commitment to making a difference. And that's what I've devoted my life to. Thanks for listening, y'all. We have a special announcement as well. We will be doing a live podcast recording at Dink Independent Comic and Art Expo here in Denver at the McNichols Building April 14th at 12 p.m. I will be sitting down with local artist and activist Adrian Norris. She recently spoke in Denver Women's March and is releasing a deck of postcards featuring Colorado's women behaving badly. Tickets are still available at dinkdenver.com. You can find more details on our IG at Shoes Off Please. And we now have a Facebook as well. And you should go and like and share that page. Make sure to subscribe on Spotify and SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts app for the next episodes. And we will see you soon.